Welcome to the Lone Star Keto Podcast. I'm your host, Amber. My vision for this podcast is to showcase experts in the keto carnivore community, as well as those who have compelling stories that inspire and give others hope. My wish is that no one has to suffer like I did. If you find value in this podcast, please consider subscribing and hitting that notification button. And as always, feel free to share. Thank you so much for your support. Hi, I'm Amber, and welcome to the Lone Star Keto Podcast. Today, we have a special guest with us, Brett Lloyd. He happens to be one of my friends, and he's actually been on the podcast before, but with his beautiful wife, Danielle, who kind of stole the show. So we can't let that go. So now he's back. Welcome, Brett. Well, thank you so much, Amber. That was a that was the funniest introduction I've ever had. That was beautiful. She, she, my, my formerly introverted wife did sort of bust out of her shell in that discussion, didn't she? She really did. Funny. She did. I was cracking up, about to roll out on the floor, and the expression on your face every time she jumped in before you could go, and then bam, she was on it, and you're like, <laughs> that was I, worth I, it. Y'all go, I, I go see a, that video. I'll, I'll put had, it here. I had a big smile on my face because I was, it was great to see her do that. I mean, it really was, it was, but it was very unexpected. Very unexpected. I wish, yeah, she, would do, I wish she would do more. I, th- I think, I think she's got her own powerful story to tell and, and she does. She does. And hey, there's and just not enough hours in the week. No, there's not. <laughs> Believe me. But speaking of that coming out of your shell and all that good stuff, I hear that you have been just rocking it with the creativity. I want to hear a little bit that about that in just a minute. But first, let's kind of get a background on you. Just be real brief because we'll, we'll talk about some more stuff in depth. But basically, why are you such a big advocate of carnivore? Why? I mean, what has well, it done for you? Well, a few little things like uh, I lost 40 plus years of depression, anxiety, and insomnia symptoms just eating this way. Uh, 24 days in, I lost the depression symptoms. It took five months for the anxiety symptoms to be completely in remission. And uh, the insomnia was kind of a gradual 10 month declined where it just disappeared. And every aspect of my life has just been transformed in the most amazing ways possible. I mean, literally when my depression vanished, it was like somebody flipped a switch inside me and I went from depressed guy to somebody who was filled with happiness and joy. And I'm like, whoa, this is awesome. And now I don't know how to act. <laughs> I'm not, I've never, I, I've been sick for so long. I don't know how to act. So it's been kind of the challenge is to develop the happy skills that I never had and, and to recognize, you know, okay, that's an old behavior. We don't want that anymore. We don't need that. We need to replace it with something more positive, more socially acceptable. And every day continues to be just better than the day before in ways that I never imagined possible. Okay, so what do you attribute this to? You mentioned meat and water, but 
expand just a little bit for somebody who may not really quite understand what you're saying? Well, I, I, I consume animal fat and protein only. I started July 16th, 2018, eating that way um, after seeing some powerful anecdotal evidence that it could eliminate and hearing from people who I believe have incredible integrity. Dr. Sean Baker, Dr. Jordan Peterson, Amber O'Hearn, just to name a couple. And I just kind of followed the directions. I, I surrendered myself to the process. I wanted to not be crazy anymore. I wanted that more than anything. You know, if they had told me, you know, Brett, if you eat three, 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 three pebbles from, from the alley out behind your house, it'll help. Well, you can bet every day I'd have been looking at it weird, but I'd have tried it most likely. I was that desperate. And, you know, for me, depression was kind of like, imagine walking around with a 50-pound anvil on your head all the time. It's there when you wake up. It's grinding on you. It's making everything you do all day long so much more difficult. You're making mistakes over simple things. You, 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 you fly off the handle over nothing burger after nothing burger. You say terrible things to the people you care about. And then you go to bed at night knowing it's going to be there in the morning when you wake up and you get to do it all over again. That sounds like fun, doesn't it? Sounds like loads of fun. <laughs> that, that's, why, that's why when I, you know, you hold that hope out to me that I could lose all of that by just changing the way I eat. Oh, absolutely. I'm going to try it. 10 days into that, I woke up with that joint pain for the first time as an adult. That was cool. That was very unexpected. Uh, but then on the 24th day, the depression, it's gone. And it's never, ever come back. It's never come back. I have not had a down day in 909 straight days of living this way. And that's not to say that life still hasn't thrown obstacles and aggravations and tragedies and nightmares my way, because it has, but it's been so much more manageable and navigable. Uh, whereas before when I was sick, you know, just the car not starting would be just like this most horrible. Devin, what are we going to do? How are we going to get you to work? What, what's going to happen to us? And, then, you know, geez, the car doesn't start. It's not the end of the world. It probably needs a jump or cars break down. It's not that unusual, but I would blow it into this horrible thing. And all through the nightmares of 2020, that I, like so many others, had. Yeah, let's talk some more about that. You had a rough last year. I mean, last year was bad, but you had a couple of other things pile on you. Talk about yeah, all it, that. Yeah, it was, it was a rough year. I, I can't say it was rougher than anybody else's because I don't measure things like that. But, you know, my father passed away in April. Uh, I got a call in February, like two days before all the COVID hysteria went nationwide and things started shutting down. My mom called and said, I need you to come help me take care of your dad in home hospice. And so I, I got to fly while everybody's freaking out. That was interesting to see. 
but I wasn't straight. I was, I've never been worried about the virus, not because I don't believe there is a virus, isn't one, because I'm sure there, there is one, most certainly. But I take care of myself. I eat, I only eat human absorbable nutrition. I don't consume any carbs of any kind. I don't eat anything inflammatory. So I have a very robust immune system. I feel incredible. I'm not worried about catching a virus with a 99.97% survival rate. I got that statistic from a physician, by the way, not from some internet website. A live, breathing human being told me that. And, uh, you know, I'd known dad was, was in poor health for a long time, but I wasn't prepared for what I came into. You know, I, I thought I was intellectually prepared for what was about to happen, but no, I, I wasn't even in, anywhere in the ballpark. And the whole experience was a mixture of seeing some beautiful moments of the family expressing their love and appreciation, but <laughs> the rest of it was a horror show because my father was dying from end-stage renal disease after 20-plus years of type 2 diabetes. He had severe uh, dementia, just where you could watch his conscious awareness come and go literally second by second. He's here. He's gone. He's, he's here. Okay, he's still here. Now he's gone again. Um, and part of me wishes I could have videotaped that to show as, as a documentary, this is what the end game of type two diabetes is right here. This is what you got to look forward to. And it's so unnecessary. And so it was this whole thing, you know, the fo my focus was to take care of him in the best way I could with the skills I had available physically, my knowledge of things. Thousands of years ago, I worked in a psych hospital. I, I'm, I'm not completely medically ignorant. I'm still just a guitar player though. And my sister was there and my mom and we took care of him for 12, 14 days, something like that, maybe 15 days. I, I didn't write things, time, just kind of flowed then because I had, I had to focus on him completely. You know, he, he had to be cared for 24 seven. Uh, he, he, we had a catheter, he had a catheter. He was kept trying to rip that out, which was not pleasant to have to deal with and wrestle with your dying dad to keep him from hurting himself. That wasn't a good time. But through it all, I knew it was, there was going to be an end to this. Whereas with depression, there, you, you, there was no end in sight, ever. This is the way it's always going to be. Whereas this is, was a stressful, but yet still temporary situation. And I could see that, realize it. And I'm really proud of the way my mom and my sister and I, we all came together. We hadn't seen each other together like that for years and years and years because my sister lives in North Carolina. I live in Florida. I've lived all over the Southeast and my parents, you know, still in West Virginia where they were for 50 years together. 
but we came together as a family and, and we did right by it. And for that, I'm very proud. But, you know, I heard his last breath. I, my mom and I were in the other room. He, he, you know, his breathing was extraordinarily loud. There's a term for that that I can't recall off the top of my head. Um, anyway, and, and then suddenly there's silence. And that was sad. But then after I got to thinking about it, I'm like, you know, he's not suffering anymore. That's a big plus because he suffered horribly horribly and we weren't suffering anymore from watching him suffer and that was a big plus and I realized that as I was getting on the plane to come back back to to Jacksonville Florida that morning because he passed at 424 uh 5th of April and uh I just remember getting on the plane thinking and sitting there looking out the window and like, you know, this is a sad day, but it's not a bad day. I get to go home and see my wife, who I've missed horribly over these past three weeks, however long it was. Uh, I miss sitting in my chair. I miss, you know, I miss, I miss being home. It was a good day. You know, we're all going to die. It doesn't have to be a bad day unless we choose to make it so. And I truly believe without the clarity of thought, the, the responsive mindfulness that I have now, if I had been the crazy, hyper-reactive human being, I would have, geez, they'd have locked me up before I got <laughs> I made the first, when I got to my first connecting flight, you know, it would have been all over. I, I just, you sir, come with me. We have some men with the white coats over here ready to help you. Uh, because somebody would have said something that would have punched, the red lights would have come on and I'd have been off to the races ranting and raving. But thanks be to God, that never came close to happening. And then I get home and I'm dealing with grief, I'm, I, I, which is an interesting process. It, I, I didn't know what to expect. I mean, what you read, I knew whatever I'd read about it wouldn't have anything to do with what it felt like. And I was right in that aspect. But then uh, I knew he wasn't in his, the greatest health in the world. But then I, I saw my dog that we'd had for 10 years. And he'd been having issues with cancer. And we put him on all meat like a year and a half earlier. And so he had, he actually got to live about a year longer than he would have otherwise. And he had a good year. You know, he and I took a ton of walks and he was ambulatory, wasn't in misery. But it was like three days after I got back after dad passed and I'm looking at him going, oh my gosh, you know, it's time. And the combination of the two, now that was challenging because I was, I was dealing with dad in, in little bits and drabs and trying to process, because it's a profound thing when you lose a parent. 
And especially when it was the love-hate kind of relationship, it gets even weirder and more difficult because you're like, you know, there's a part of you that remembers the awful part and the little evil thing on your shoulder. It's like, well, good for him, you know, finally got what he deserved. And then over here, there's the faith-based side going, now, you know, you want to pray for him and you let all that go and you forgave him. And so there's this thing going on. And then I have to put my dog down. <laughs> and there was, I'll never forget there was that morning after I realized we were going to have to do it. And before I'd even said anything to, to my wife, then the, the whole thing hit me at once. And for about 20 seconds, I almost got overwhelmed. I could see in that 20 second experience how grief could break people. Because it was awful. Just nothing like depression, completely different thing. It was just intense emotion. And it just didn't feel good at all. And I'm like, I can't do this. I'm not going to do this. This, is, this. this doesn't lead to a good place. And uh, so I, you know. I'm a medical marijuana patient here in the state of Florida. So I use cannabis to help keep me away from that successfully. And why also, why always maintaining my diet? Um, and then rather than sit around, now see when dad's passing, dad never has ne was never in our home. He never came and saw our house. You know, by the time we moved down here, his health was such his traveling days were over. So there weren't any reminders. Whereas when Blackie passed, you know, we're still finding his, his black hair in places. So there was all these reminders everywhere. So that made it more difficult. And I'm like, I'm not sitting around here weeping over a dead dog that I cannot help. We're gonna find another dog and we're gonna spend our energy on him, which is exactly what we did. We were fortunate to find this really cool American bully puppy. I never even knew that was a breed. Somebody said, what, I, what, what, what kind of dog? Oh, it's an American bully. I'm like, what? <laughs> what is that? I didn't even know those things. That sounded like a, I thought it was a joke, but it turns out it's a real breed where they take uh, American uh, Staffordshire Terriers and Bulldogs and they, they breed the mean out of and they're these very protective, loyal companions that will literally die for you if necessary. Hopefully that day never comes, but I've seen where, yeah, he's very protective. And stranger comes up, he puts himself between me and the stranger every time. Oh, dogs are the best. But doing that probably saved me from hurting even longer with the grief at that intense level because I had something positive to focus on. In the midst of all the COVID aggravation, couldn't go to the gym and all that kind of stuff, I had, I had, I had, I had the Lord Baron of Eve to, to spend my energy on. And, you know, he was, he, he was, they told us he was eight weeks. Well, no, he, we found out later he was actually much younger than that. He, he was probably weaned a little too soon uh -oh. on top of it, but he's fine. He's, uh, 
He's still he's a little over eight months old, and he's already the strongest dog I've ever owned, pound for pound. And uh, we're tickled to death to have him. But I, I for, for, firmly believe that the carnivore way of eating is what enabled me to navigate that nightmare. And then as awful as 2020 was in that regard, the rest of the year is pretty freaking spectacular. Just blessing after blessing after blessing. And I think it's so important that people recognize this way of eating provides a level of happiness that doesn't require effort. You know, and, and Dr. Barry, Kim Barry and I talked about this. That was a really wonderful conversation. No wonder you like him so much. Uh, and we both agreed that when we feed ourselves properly, we get the right amount of rest. We've got decent amount of hydration and our environment will permit it. And somebody loves us, cares about us. Our normal natural state is one of happiness. And yeah. I mean, I, I, I live that every day, every morning. My eyes go open. It doesn't matter if I woke up three hours before I wanted to. It doesn't matter if it was a great, it, it's irrelevant. I wake up with a smile on my face. Okay, it's time. Let's get after it. Okay, let me ask you a question. Do sure. you get comments? Because you post a lot about, oh, happy, this is great day, this many days on this, and I'm feeling fabulous, always happy, and all this. Do you ever get comments where somebody goes, bullshit? No, I haven't. And I think that's really? because, I think that's because I, I, I've become, been able to recognize genuinely happy people. You can't fake it. You just can't fake it. I don't think it's possible. Now, you might be able to go to acting school and become a great actor type individual, and you might be able to pull it off for a short period of time. But people can look through my social media and consistently, my tone of voice, my expressions, nothing is different. I, it's been this way since, you know, August 9th when I lost my depression symptoms, 2018. I'll never, you know, a date forever. I, I, I'll always cherish because it's such a beautiful memory. And the happiness has never ended. Now, there's been times, you know, thank people, I still get angry like everybody else does on occasion. But whereas before the anger would own me, now I, I, I vent what needs to be vented and it's over with and life goes on. It's not something to sit around and ruminate on or you know, cling to with both ends. I feel injustice and it needs to be, you know, it's a waste of time and energy. I got too much stuff to do. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's, it, it is. And again, before carnivore, I, I had no concept of that. I mean, yeah, intellectually on paper, I got the, I, I got the just, but I couldn't do that. I couldn't. I wasn't able to process my environment accurately to do anything well but thankfully that's over with amber it's not yeah. coming back as long as i keep eating God, please as long as i keep eating as i am i have no concerns i never worry about it and if people i have had people say 
Well, you know, I'd rather you'd stay depressed than have healed yourself by eating this way. Oh, vegans. I've had vegans say oh. that directly. Yeah. They wish I'd stayed depressed so that I wouldn't have killed so many animals to get well. And you know what? They can be as upset as they want to be because I'm not going to be crazy for any reason, let alone to satisfy somebody else's ideology. Forget it. It's not happening. I, I don't think a lot of people really understand what it feels like to be mentally ill. Um, I mean, I know a lot of people have had to deal with that, but I can't really you know, comprehend what you must have gone through. I've been depressed, but it's an emotional, you know, kind of uh, a depression, not a clinical kind. You, you knew, but, you knew that you knew when you hit, you were down, it was going to end. Yeah. That's the difference. That's the blues. That, you know, that's, that's yeah. kind of like what, what the blues are. Depression is a whole nother animal. Depression, depression, rolls around in your head telling you bad things about yourself. It lies to you constantly. You know, you're not worth it. Uh, I was always angry. I was never satisfied. You know, Amber, if I just had some Perrier water today, my day would get so much better. But then I would get the Perrier and I would look at it and find 12 things wrong with the bottle. And then I would have a drink and I'd be like, well, no, that's not what it's supposed to be like. And I would be, I would find 87 more reasons why it wasn't what it claimed to be. And now my life sucks all over again because that thing I imagined that would make me feel better, that would fix what was wrong in my world, failed me. And I lived like that every day. You know, is okay. I've written this really great song. This song's going to be the one. This is it. This is the one. I've got to record this so perfectly. And, and I've got to do all these things perfectly because this song is so good. It deserves this. And I would get so obsessed and set myself. And it might be a really good song. And there was a lot of good songs I wrote when I was nuts. But I didn't have the cognitive ability to record them well or to produce them well, which is exactly what I did. I poorly produced my own music for years. <laughs> uh, I couldn't do any of those things because that's what mental illness did to me, you know? And since I've gotten better and, oh, you know, last year I, I, I grew a new muse, thank God. And I, I, one of the first things I realized when I, when I wanted to start picking up a guitar again, when I started needing to pick up a guitar again, is I can't do that until I learn how to record it properly. Because I would have people all for years, knowledgeable, professional musicians, guys who knew their stuff, frontwards, backwards, and sideways would say, you need to do, learn how to do this, this, and this. And I would try to learn it, but I couldn't process it. I couldn't figure it out. And it was because my brain was inflamed. It was not operating in an optimal manner. Nothing close to optimal. But after I got better and I realized I've got to learn how to do recording properly before I pick up the guitar and start writing songs left and right and, and get... I can't repeat history. I have to be better. 
What's the point in getting well if we're not going to do better than we were before? And so I immersed myself in the study and finally learned how to use all these tools that I've had at my fingertips for years, but was frustrated by to no end. And now the quality of my productions are fast approaching what I always hoped them to be. We crossed a new threshold. There's been new mixes <laughs> since what you heard that I need, I need to share because the education never really stops. You know, and technology being what it is, there's always a new gadget or a new gizmo. Oh, God, I've reached, yeah. I've, I've reached, though, the point to where I'm like, okay, I, all I need now is to write better songs. And so that's kind of what I'm focused on. I've got two albums I'm working on with two different projects, and I've never been so happy. Never. I mean... Music used to be so hard because, again, I couldn't process things. I couldn't tell. Okay, that felt so good while I played it. Why does the recording sound terrible? I don't understand. Those kinds of frustrations. And, and okay, that all sounded good, but I didn't, couldn't understand the concept that when you're mixing music, you change one thing over here at the beginning of the song, it affects everything throughout the whole song. Well, that was a concept my brain, inflamed brain, just never could put, <laughs> I couldn't land a blow on that no matter how hard I tried to hit it. And now it's effortless. Now all those, those puzzles and problems that I couldn't discern or figure out, it's, it's, it's like, geez, how did I not understand that? And creativity is so important too. So it, it just, it's like this release. And so when, when you do have that muse going and you do get to do that, it's so cathartic. Uh, I'm still waiting for my stupid muse, but uh, she's being, yeah. Well, it, it is, it's very cathartic. You know, the first song I wrote had to deal with my dad's passing, which it shouldn't, is no surprise. I mean, it's the most traumatic event of the year, one of the most traumatic events I'll probably ever have in my life. So, it, you know, it, it'll probably be worth two or three more songs before it's all said and done. But before, when I first started writing, gosh, let's talk about how old I am. In the, in the middle to early, late 80s, it was fun. Let's have fun. Let's go drink a beer, rock and roll. You know, let's have a good time. Let's throw up a party kind of stuff. But as I got sicker, it got darker and then more dirgy. <laughs> and then, you know, then I made the mistake of reading a line uh, from David Gilmore, the uh, guitar player for Pink Floyd. I read a line of, from an interview he, out, he gave out of context. And he says, there's great beauty in melancholy. Well, my depression just latched onto that with both hands dug its teeth into it the whole nine yards so that became and what he was talking about was in sad times there can still be beautiful things that happen but see naturally i didn't take it in the context in which it was said i took it okay this is now my mantra i can write all these sad songs and it's going to be fine because there's and there were some really good pieces um some beautiful stuff 
that I actually accidentally got right. Where the performance and, and the poor production, the performance was good enough that the poor production didn't matter as much. Of course, now I hear that and I just, <laughs> oh, dear God, <laughs> please make it stop. Why didn't I have some, and I, I used to say, why didn't I have somebody trying to tell me, don't, don't release that? And then my wife reminded me, well, you wouldn't have listened anyway. But thankfully, creating music now is joyful. I mean, I still write in the minor key, not because I'm sad, but just because for me, that's still, that minor sound is very inspiring. I enjoy creating from that, but I've also made these songs uplifting. Like one song is just called hope and it's a mixture of, okay, this is, it's a mixture of the pain, but then there's this joy thing that happens. Um, and then another song called trust, which is basically about learning how to trust humans again, because when you've been crazy for decades, and then suddenly you're free of all that. You've got great clarity of thought. The way you interact with human beings isn't quite the same as it was. And especially if they've known you when you were Captain Cuckoo, they don't know how to deal with the new you. It took my wife a long time <laughs> to get used to me not being Mr. Psycho. And I had to learn a lot of new ways of, you know, when I got angry before, I might bang my fist on the table for 10 minutes and scream at the top of my lungs and say all kinds of horrible things to people who didn't deserve it. Well, you can't, that's not socially, that's not a proper expression of anger, is it, Amber? I had to learn how to do it better than that. Yeah. And I've gotten a lot better. I still have a long way to go. But there's, you know, I don't rant and rave and I don't sit around ruminating and I don't, you know, there's no angry emails going out. I'm not burning bridges left and right just because somebody annoys me or disagrees with me. There's none of that nonsense happening. And it all goes back to there's no longer inflammation in between my ears. So I don't have to make stupid choices unless I choose to. And I think that's one thing living this way provides for us it doesn't require a lot of inward retrospection to be honest with yourself now mm -hmm. i mean it really doesn't and i've talked to other carnivores who've been doing it a lot longer and, and they seem they seem to agree that everything, it's not that life is easier because it's not. Life is still just as unfair as it's always been and always will be. But I think the focus changes from what we want to what we need. And then when we have what we need, we appreciate it so much more. Yeah, and, and when you have a clear mind, it's a lot easier to see things for what they really are. And, you know... I, I will say, I mean, I definitely get sad and depressed, especially here lately, too much crazy. And I feel the stress and, and, and all of that. Absolutely. But if I was like how I was before, I, I would be 
probably curled up in a ball crying and, you know, shutting myself off completely from the world. So, you know, there's definitely something different to that. Yeah. If you were like, if you were the way you were when we first met, you, you would, well, this would this conversation wouldn't be happening for sure. Cause you wouldn't let anybody see you from, from below your chin. That, that was when you, yeah, there you go. That was what I, there, that, that was the Amber I met. And, and, you know, you've come and grown so many in so many ways and you're able to deal and manage stress at levels you never thought you could before. I, I've seen you do it. Yeah. Still struggling with the stress, but hey, what can you do? <laughs> well, you'll get things squared away. You, you're dealing with a couple of issues that, that you're working on mm-hmm. and you'll get those resolved. And, and I really think that once you do that, then you're going to be like, you know, that bald-headed old man was right. This really, this really does feel this good. Yeah. yeah. We'll keep praying for you. You're going to get there. Yeah. If I could just get rid of the stress aspect, everything else would be good to go. <laughs> but well, go figure. I don't, I don't know how, I don't know if it's possible how to live a stressless life. I just find... Mm-hmm. What keeps me from feeling stressed, I don't waste energy on nothing burgers anymore. I used to get so upset over insignificant nonsense. I would hold a grudge over a nothing burger. <laughs> and, and, you know, it was one of the, the first the first six weeks after after the depression lifted. That's that was one of the most obvious revelations that I had was the things that used to make my wife would say, I would say, why is such and such sitting over there? Oh, two years ago, you made it emphatically clear that that's where that item had to be no matter what. But that was stupid. Well, yeah, but we weren't going to argue with you then because that would just made for more trouble. Nobody appreciates my return to health any more than my wife does, believe me. Uh, yeah, and see, I want to talk a little bit about that too, because like with you having the issues you did, and still I'm not sure if you're coming across strong enough, just how debil- debilitating that was for you. And it doesn't just affect you, it affects everybody around you. So what was it like for your son and your wife? I mean, did you yell at your son? Did you, you know, did you feel like you were abusive? And I'm not talking about smacking him around or something. No, but... he, he was, he was, I, my biggest regret through all of this is that I was raising children while I was crazy. So they got to they got they got a crazy man's upbringing and i wouldn't wish that on anybody it wasn't that i was gave mixed signals it was i was unpredictable and i would just fly off the handle over nothing things that i i again i realized you know after i got my sanity back i was like jeez and I've, I've apologized where we're applicable, you know, 
because if I had known, if, you know, being the person I am now, if I could have been that person then, well, obviously I wouldn't, none of those, that awful stuff would have happened. If I'd have learned about the carnivore way of eating when I was 20 instead of 58, 57, how old was I when I, yeah, 50, 2018. So yeah, I was 58, 57, excuse me, get it right. And, and, you know, so much misery would have never occurred. But fortunately, my sons accept it. They understand it. Um, one still has issues, but a lot of that's on him. He's a grown man now. I've, I've made amends as best I can. It, it, it's not my responsibility to make them accept what I, my apology. I'm not the same person I was during those days. Obviously, I don't act anything at all like that. Thank God. Um, but, you know, it was really the hardest on my life because I couldn't work. I was unemployable. And I, I was to the point to where my days were 14 hours in the computer chair with a guitar and and. and whatever music software I was working with at the time on whatever song I was on. And that was my day. I didn't go anywhere. I went to church on Sundays. And then even for a time, I got mad at God and I quit doing that. Um, there wasn't much of a lie. And then throw, you throw in on the side effects from all the psych meds that I always took as prescribed. And the fact that, you know, right now I weigh about 186, 187 pounds. Well, five, you know, January 2015, just a little over five years ago, I weighed 289 pounds and was on seven psych meds and didn't think I'd live out the year. And now I'm thriving. I don't, um, life is great. I feel amazing. And the communication with me and my wife is so awesome. We're not, we're not, we still have disagreements. But when we have disagreements, we say what we got to say and then it's over. It doesn't carry over to the next day or even the next hour. Because what's the point? You know, <laughs> what's the point? And, uh, but most of the time, we're not just on the same page. We're in the same paragraph, literally. We have a blast. We can go We can go run errands on a Saturday and just laugh ourselves stupid. Have a great time. Not doing anything important. And I'm so thankful that we've had these couple of years together. These 900 and some days of me not being a, a hateful psycho. And... You know, plus Danielle's been a carnivore too. She's just a month behind me and she's undergone this incredible transformation for herself as an individual. And then you combine the two of us together and what it's done for our marriage. It's just, well, if I talk about what all it's done for our marriage, I just sound like a dirty old man. <laughs> yeah, I was waiting to see if you were going to go there or not. <laughs> well, yeah, I was going to go there. Uh, it was interesting in, in uh, before one of the mental health meetings at Meet Our Ex um, the other day, there was I came in and there was a group of women talking. And one of them said, well, is your ears burning? And I'm like, no, what I do now? And that one said, 
another lady said, well, we were just talking about the libido benefits and we were making fun about how you dance around the issue. But since it was just us women here, we were, they were telling it like it, like it was, like it is in, in detail. Of course, once a guy shows up, all that ends, but which is fine. But the point is, is it's an issue that a lot of people are uncomfortable with, but it doesn't get talked about enough. Mm-hmm. You know, intimacy is not all there is that's important in a marriage, but if the intimacy isn't right, it becomes the most important thing in a marriage that has to be resolved. And we're like 20 years old now. I'm serious. I'm so glad you didn't say something else. We're like, we're, we're like, we are 20 years old now. When, when we close the door, it's like we're 20. It feels better than anything I either one of us ever imagined. And the ability to communicate in that intimate moment that was always missing before is always present now, which makes it that much more a wonderful experience for both of us. And the joy that we share together now, and it's not, you know, it's not like we sit around making moon eyes at each other all the time because she's got stuff to do. I got stuff to do. And we're not in each other's face all the time when we're at home together. You know, I try to make her laugh as much as possible and I do a pretty fair job of it. And, you know, she keeps the place running. You know, she's a workaholic. She'll never retire, I don't think. She'll say she's retiring, but, but she never will. She complains, I don't ever get a morning to sleep in. Well, would you really do it that long? <laughs> All right, this is, All right, I'd rather be doing, I'd rather be in the garden. I'd rather be doing this or doing that, which is fine. But I can't recommend this enough for couples. I mean, it didn't just put a spark in our marriage. It like, it like put a n- nuclear reactor into it. It really did, you know, and we just we just enjoy each other now. We don't spend time being petty and bitchy and, you know, well, I'm going to win this argument at all costs kind of nonsense and all that kind of stuff. None of that. We don't, you know, now when we both get annoyed or we feel like there's a grievance that needs to be aired, we'll do that. But it's not ever done from a hateful, I must win this at all costs kind of thing, which for me, when I was crazy that, you know, we're going to have an argument, I'm going to win, or we're going to argue till the sky falls down. We're going to argue until you agree, till I wear you out, if necessary, till I exhaust you, I'm going to win this discussion. That was kind of how I was then. Now I don't care. You know, I want the right thing to happen. Yeah, you know what, you just hit on something, I don't really care. I I think that's kind of interesting because, I mean, there's a whole lot I do care about, I'm not going to lie, but it seems like more and more I find I'm like, I don't care, you know, like, well, where where do you want to go eat, or are you hungry, whatever, I don't care, I don't care, you know, it's like, for most of the time but you know not that I don't have my times but yeah it's kind of an interesting concept 
where you're just what? kind of more. Well, you, you're, you're choosing what to spend your energy on. You're going to spend it on something worthwhile. Or you're going to spend it on something petty ego nonsense that doesn't advance your quality of life. Why? That's something I'm very cognizant of. I turned 60 in, 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 in March. Now, I don't care that I'm turning 60, but I am aware that the sands in the hourglass are only going one way. So I don't want to waste my time. You know, I figure I've got, if I keep working on music the way I am, I got three, maybe four albums, good albums left in me before the natural physical decline, the inability to maintain a high level of performance. It happens to everybody when we age, especially in music. But it doesn't have it doesn't it doesn't mean I'm going to stop trying to make music because I'm going to, we know that if we take care of ourselves, you can be thriving and physically active mm. even into your 90s. Yep. But still, logically. I expect to be ambulatory still doing resistance training when I'm in my 70s, mm -hmm. but I don't expect I'll be able to play a lead guitar solo with the same level of proficiency at the same speed that I can now. And I probably won't be able to hit sing and hit notes at the same octaves, same places that I can now. I'm going to lose range. So I want to make the best music. God's given me these talents. And now for the first time in my life, I'm in a place to where I can utilize them and create and make it what it should have always been. And I don't want to waste time on nonsense. I want to help as many people before I take my last breath learn about what happened to me. What happened to you when we stopped eating garbage? Mm -hmm. Those are my two number one focuses in the world. And that's my priority, music and then teaching, sharing about meat and water. Everything else... Mm -hmm. It's kind of real. It's not to say that it's not important to somebody else, but it, other things aren't important to me that used to be, you know, gosh, I wish we had a better house. Well, who doesn't? The roof doesn't leak. Yeah. Plumbing works mostly. You know, air conditioners work when it's a thousand degrees here in Florida. And when we do have that rare cold moment from the cold air that you send across the Gulf of Mexico from Texas, right to me, <laughs> you know, we get over it. The nothing burgers are just that. They're nothing burgers. And without carnivore, geez, I shudder to think, would I even be alive now? Would I be able to function in a socially acceptable manner at all? Probably not. Yeah, would you and Danielle still be together? I mean. Well, yeah, we would have because I was, you know, I was, remember, I replaced all the psych meds with cannabis. So mm -hmm. that did treat my symptoms, but it didn't eliminate what was wrong with me. The inflammation was still there. The, the propensity for all that inappropriate behavior was always just right there below the surface waiting for, for waiting to come out if the cannabis level, the THC level ever dropped low enough, long enough. You know, if I went two or three days without it, then, then, then the hinges would start to come off again. 
Yeah, and I was going to ask you about now. that. The, sure. the, the, the difference of like, okay, you say carnivore did this certain thing for you. And then you say you're also doing medicinal uh, marijuana. Mm -hmm. So for somebody who doesn't know you or know your story, why is it not the marijuana that just makes everything better? How do you, what makes you think that the diet really did anything versus the effects of the marijuana? I guess this, I think I said well, that right. Yeah, you did. I, I got the gist of it. Well, I use the cannabis now for a completely different reason. The cannabis, the reason why I use cannabis now is for behavioral reasons. It's hard for me to articulate and make people understand who weren't around and observing me then how I was extraordinarily angry all the time. I radiated rage. I was oblivious to it at the time. But when I see pictures of, for instance, there's a picture of me and Danielle. We'd rescued this dog, called him Bandit. <laughs> Turned out that he was a dog and already had a heartworm. Uh, anyway, but my wife and I remember that as a good day. And the place that we got him from, they took a picture with us and the dog. And when I saw that picture a few years ago, I look like I'm mad at the world. I'm ready to hate on people. I've got this hateful scowl on my face. And Daniel and I both remember that as a good day. Hmm. But that's what I looked like. That's what, how I came across to people all the time. All the time. That was, that was my natural normal. That was my normal for that period of my life. That didn't just go away when the depression went away and the anxiety went away. That angry way of living. I became the happiest, most obnoxious, hypercritical jerk you never wanted to be within 100 miles of without the cannabis. But when I used cannabis, the jerk melts away and you get the guy you talk to and joke with and have seen consistently behave the same way since day one we met to now. And every interview, I, I, I get the biggest kick out of this. Every interview I've ever done, every talk I've ever given, I was always under the influence of cannabis. And nobody knew it unless I told them. I mean, I'm medicated for a normal person. I, I would be considered very extremely medicated for, for people who are only use pot rec marijuana recreationally. They probably would not be awake right now. But I feel beautiful. I feel great. I'm at peace. I'm at ease. Uh, you're asking hard, thoughtful questions. I'm enjoying the, the give and take. And... It's not, a, it's, I don't, I think the biggest change in all of this is I was afraid for the better part of 45, 50 years. I'm not afraid anymore. I'm not afraid. I haven't been afraid for one moment with this COVID stuff. And it's not because I don't take the virus seriously. 
people have been dying from it. People with comorbidities are dropping like flies. Well, I don't have any of those comorbidities. What do I have to fear from that? Now, you know, if I ever contract it, I'll, I'll stay, I'll, I'll quarantine myself. I'll do the right thing and, and make sure that I don't give it to anybody else. And, but I'm not going to be afraid of it. I don't, what do I have to fear? I'm not bulletproof, obviously. I'm going to die one day. My heart is going to quit beating and it'll be game over. But between now and then, what do I have to be afraid of? I've got hell. I've got sanity. When you've not had sanity and then you get it. I used to think, you know, if I just won the lottery, then then, then I could just ah, relax. Let that, you know, let it all go. Okay. Everything's taken care of now. All my needs will be met. All the family's needs will be met. Blah, 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 blah. I, I wouldn't exchange how I feel now for a hundred million dollars. I wouldn't eat a spoonful of honey or ice cream for a million dollars. That's how much I value my sanity. That's how much it matters to me. And, you know, a lot of people like to play around and experiment with their diet and they want to try this and they want to see what happens if they add this back in and all that. I don't get that luxury. And I'm not willing to ever take the chance that I could bring the crazy back. Because, you know, there's no guarantee if it comes back that I could make it leave again. Mm -hmm. That's a scary thought. And to think, well, I've seen it happen to folks, you know, and there's a lady that I interviewed a year and a half or so ago, maybe, maybe longer. It's up on my Instagram if you go back far enough. And this person suffered from severe depression and anxiety. And they committed to 30 days, but they promised themselves that on the 31st day they would eat sugar and just to see what would happen. They got well, they kicked their symptoms to the curb and then they ate crap. They made a video about it. And then two weeks later, they turned their Instagram to private because their symptoms had all come back and everything was just completely unmanageable. And they're still not right, as I understand. Yikes. Why? What, what flavor? There's no flavor. There's no taste. There's no texture. There's no social setting. There's no amount of pressure this big bad world can impose upon me that's going to make me put something in my mouth that I know puts my sanity at immediate risk. And yes, if I ate a spoonful of honey, it would go very bad for me. I'd probably be in the locked psych unit before the sun came up. Jeez. That's how dangerous <laughs> sugar is to me. Hmm. I'm not taking that chance. And when, when you've been through what I've been through, and you reach happiness and the fear's gone, it's why I, I called myself the thankful carnivore. 
Because, I mean, I thank God every day. I thank him every day for teaching me about meat and wine. I thank him every day for the opportunity that I get to share with other people to let them know you're not broken. You're not a mistake. Your mom and dad didn't make a genetic pile of dog do. You were just taught to eat wrong like the rest of us were. And we were taught to eat things that are inflammatory and toxic. You know, here, have this bag of crunchy goodness that's going to hit your bliss point at least four times per, per, per every three ounces. And, and you're going to be so addicted that you're going to find you can't live without this. And see, and I think people who haven't been on the other side don't fully get it. Like just for me, I was so carb sugar addicted that I, I was a, a slave to the food. I mean, I, I just thought about food 24 seven. And when that was gone, that monkey was off my back. That was the most liberating feeling ever. And to me, it's not worth doing dumb stuff to maybe fall back into that. Cause it's just like, a, you know, an alcoholic, you can't just start drinking all of a sudden and think that you're not going to go straight back into the bad stuff again. So yeah, I get what you mean there, but I, I can only imagine the mental illness being way more, you know, uh, scary in your head to compare to addiction of uh, the you know, food addiction, but. Well, it's, it's like trying to describe, you know, you know this, there's no way you can describe as a woman to a man in a way that he'll understand what it's like to carry a child. True story. There's, there's just no, there's no physiological point of reference for any man to make. You can't. And it's the same way when you're depressed, when you suffer mental illness. It's real hard, especially when you're sick, because when you're sick, your brain is not working well enough and it's working against you in ways that makes trying to understand and figure things out almost impossible or at best, extremely difficult. So, you know, your brain's working against you when you've got mental illness. It's not doing you any favors. I used to want to slap people. I bet you use your sickness to advance your creativity. I just wanted to choke them. This isn't doing anything good for me. Yeah, I get to write, I get a lot of material. I get to write songs about being depressed and everybody just loves those. <laughs> That's why they have the morbid concerts, you know, come out and let's all just get bummed out together. Come on down. Did, you know, it's hard to articulate to people. And the best I could come up with that people seem to understand a little bit was the anvil analogy. But it's way worse. It's so hard to describe. It's like I never wanted to end my life. I never wanted to end my life. I never wanted to hurt myself. But the illness the last few months was relentless with, well, if you were going to do it, how would you do it? I don't, I don't want to think about that. I'm a thankful Catholic convert. I've got real beliefs about suicide. I don't want to, 
That's not something I want to play games with. No, we're not going to. But if we were going to do it, how would we do it? Day after day after day, hour after hour after hour. And it never stopped until the symptoms are gone. And then the dissatisfaction, the, the rage, the sadness, the horrible sadness. You're sad all the damn time. And you most of the time could never say why. Never could. You couldn't articulate it. And there would be times, you know, my, I, I became so in, unable to perceive my environment accurately. My, Danielle would say, it's, it's looking like it's going to be a beautiful day. The sun's out. The birds are chirping. All right. My illness would take that and filter it and twist it into something grotesque, you know, to where what I heard was, yeah, you know, it's, it's going to be another beautiful day. Yeah, those birds. Sure, it's going to be. And I would hear that. And that would be how it was filtered through to my awareness. And because I love my wife, honey, what's wrong? <laughs> and she would look at me like what's wrong with you I just told you it looks like it's going to be a beautiful day but see and then you try to ex explain that to her well it was she couldn't she was trying to deal with me as if I was a regular normal sane person but I wasn't and so it just grinded on both of us. We, I couldn't communicate. I wanted to communicate. She knew I was trying to communicate something, but I could never get it out in a way that made sense. She would be hurt and frustrated. I would get hurt and frustrated. So you just add that into the mix of what I've already told you that was happening all the time, every day. Mm -hmm. That's kind of what depression was like. And even that doesn't really do it justice because the worst part about it, I, there's a picture, I don't post it very often because it's really quite horrifying. I, it, it really creeps me out. I was so upset one day, I couldn't, I don't know if it was my wife couldn't understand it or if I was trying to express myself to somebody else. And you get, you get used to seeing that look on people's faces when you know you've just, they're just like, they recognize, they see the crazy and they're feeling sorry for you. And they really just would like for you to not be there. They'd like for you to be far, far away from them to where they don't have to be this uncomfortable. And that just builds resentment and hatred and frustration. And then you start burning bridges. There's a lot of good people that I had in my life that I, 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 I just cut off all contact with. They would say something I couldn't understand or agree with or process. I usually mis had misunderstood what they were saying generally. I just cut them off. Cut them completely out of my life. I've had to do a lot of apologizing. I was going to ask you if you ever made any amends after doing that. I made amends where it was appropriate to do so. And most everybody's been very kind. 
A couple of people weren't interested. Wow. I did what I could, you know. I'm, I've apologized. I know I've been forgiven where it counts. And I don't, you know, if somebody else wants to cling and, and, and stay angry, well, that's their choice. I'm not participating in it. Hey, I want to know, you do the uh, mental health meeting through MeetRx. I jumped on one of those just to kind of see what was going on. It was my first time, just so I could talk about it right now. And I found it very in, inspiring in some ways, but very deeply, uh, just deep, just deep. It, it's a little glimpse into what I guess I've never really been exposed to, that level of pain due to some form of mental illness, whether it was depression or whatever. And you know, the way you dealt with it is very obvious. You've been there, done that. Tell us a little bit about the meetings. I, I know that, that, how do you do that? Because that's so heavy, heavy, heavy stuff. Well, thousands of years ago, when I had hair, a lot of hair, I mean, I had a lot of hair. I used to wear, I used to get to wear a name tag and a tie and I did individual therapy and I would co-lead group therapies and I developed, learned a lot. I was fortunate to uh, learn from some really talented people. And they told me, always told me, trust your gut, whatever you do, all the theory, all the books, they're important, but ultimately you, it's always about humans learning and observing and, and interpreting other humans' behaviors. Trust your gut. And I always had a fair amount of empathy, which I, I attribute now to the fact that I was, I was mentally ill. When I was working in the field, I was just unaware of it at the time. It hadn't manifested itself enough to be a problem. So it sure did later. Um, so with that as my foundation, I, and I, I, I conduct the meetings pretty much like Dr. Baker does his, you know, and, you know, greet the new people, welcome them, find out, you know, what brought you by today. And they share what they choose to share. I never try to push somebody into sharing something they don't want to share. And, uh, these meetings specifically are not recorded for privacy reasons. Mm -hmm. Uh, I get asked that all the time. Will this be recorded? Will this be? No, it's not. It's a mental health meeting. Of course, it's not going to be recorded. Um, and I just give people the chance to share what they want to share. And then I listen. And if they open any doors worth investigating, pursuing, then, then, then we go through them together. And I, I make my observations and, and, and I always try to word things to give them the opportunity to, to confirm. Is this what I'm really, is this what Brett's really seeing? Yes or no. Is, is he describing me accurately? Yes or no kind of things. So I get that affirmation back from, from the, from, from the members. 
and it allows me to to nudge them in a direction to where they can they can make their own discovery about themselves what they need to become aware of what they need to change what do what what do they need to take out and replace with a better choice or strategy as far as their behavior how they look at food what's their relationship with food like you know what's their history of self-sabotage like do they like themselves do they have a love or hate relationship with themselves are they afraid i mean genuinely afraid all the time all these things factor into it and you learn these things about them and you know, of course, the, the basis for why we're all there is the carnivore way of eating. And people want to experience what I and so many others have experienced, you know, total remission of symptom. And that's always my objective. I'm not there to fix anybody. I can't, I, you know, I don't have a toolkit. I have this way of eating and I follow the directions and that's exactly what I teach because the results speak for themselves. And so somebody in San Francisco's depression's hitting them this way and they're having these particular issues, you know, I'm really good for four days. And but that fifth day, I just can't, you know, they sabotage themselves. And you come to find out where they've been sabotaging themselves their whole lives. So you can't address the food until you address this personal sabotaging. So it's picking the priority, you know, always with the focus on prioritizing what needs to be focused on with the understanding the goal is to eliminate their symptoms. That's my objective with every meeting, to everybody leave knowing this is how we get rid of our symptoms. And if you've gotten rid of your symptoms, that's great. This is how we make sure they don't come back. That's kind of how I operate those. And, and I'm real careful to, to make it as uplifting as possible because it does get heavy. It does get really serious. You know, you're talking, we've, I, we've had some folks that, that were, were in a very passive aggressive manner expressing some suicidal ideation before. <clears throat> and yeah, just what I heard that little bit, I was kind of like, wow, that's, that's a lot, <laughs> you know, and yeah, then they hear that you do these what twice a week. Is that right? Or is it uh, Tuesday, Tuesdays at 2 PM Eastern time is the Tuesday mental health meeting. And on Fridays at 1 Eastern time is the mental health addiction meeting. Mm. Um, and through Meet RX, the first month is free. Come check it out. <laughs> Seriously, because the, the, the biggest thing that I push, though, most of all, is encouraging people to immerse themselves into the community and to come to meetings. Even if you're, you, you don't talk, you, you don't want to talk, you don't feel like talking, you're afraid to talk, whatever, don't care. Listen to other people going through what you're going through. And so many folks have, have, you know, that you see them, they come and hang and they lurk for two or three weeks. And then finally they up and say something. And usually what happens is, is they're, they're, they're not fully committed to the diet, but then they hear enough people besides Brett talk about, I'm not depressed anymore. My anxiety's gone. 
or it's greatly improved or I'm sleeping again or, you know, I suddenly looked at my husband and recognized why I love him and all these <laughs> kinds of things. And, and then they start experiencing that and their doubts and their fears are greatly diminished when they start feeling that first, when that energy first starts coming up and then you see the light going and they, they're coming to meetings. Whereas before they, they, their, their affect was obviously sad. They were exhausted. The, I can literally see depression in somebody's eyes now, almost without fail. I'm like 90% right when I make that assessment because I've lived it. I know what it looks like. I know what it feels like. I, I, I did that for over 40 years. So I've taken that experience and tried to, to utilize what I learned to help others figure out, you know, this is doable. I can do this. I just have to follow the directions and I have to create other strategies besides self-sabotage. Or, or, you know, am I going to kick my sugar addiction to the curb or am I going to die with the sweet taste of death in my mouth? <laughs> I'm not afraid to say that either. I'll ask them, you know, these are your choices. What are you going to choose? Because if you're going to choose the sweet taste of death, that's fine. If that's your choice, good luck. God bless you. I'm going to take my time and energy to, some, to somebody who wants to get better instead. And go ahead. Oh, no, I, I was just going to say um, we're coming up on time or actually ooh, we're past time. I was going to say we've talked a long time yeah. already. <laughs> but uh Talk just real quick about your coaching philosophy, because Brett is also a coach at meetrx.com, and I'll post a link below. So just well, say a little bit about that. Uh, it's kind of like what you've heard me say already. I, 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 I teach the basics. I like to keep it simple. The biggest reasons that we know people fail at this way of eating is they don't change how they look at food. They want to complicate it. You know, am, am I eating enough salt? How much water are you drinking? You know, what are your macros like? What is this like? What is that like? What is that? I want you to think in terms of your ancestor from 100,000 years ago. Where life was way more difficult than it is now. And ask yourself, you know, were they measuring these things? We don't believe they were. You know? And if you survived childbirth and childhood illnesses and stayed injury free, you could live to be 80, 90 years old then just like you do now. We know that from, from ancient burial sites. They weren't measuring salt, how much salt you eat, you know? That's what always kills me. Who knows, who cares? It's, who knows? I, I, I would never, how do you measure that through the course? Who's got time to do that? Not me. Uh, keep it simple. Follow the directions. Eating to satiety is so important. I, I, and I think that's another, the other reason that people fail. Whenever I hear, oh, I'm getting tired of just eating meat. Well, then that tells me you're not eating what you crave. You're not eating what your body's telling you it wants and what it needs. And if you're not giving it what it wants and what it needs, well, of course you're going to get bored with it. 
that's how I approach this. I keep it very simple and I stay away from nuance until the person expresses, okay, I've also got this issue. You know, maybe I don't have a gallbladder or, you know, I've had, I've had one client that I had for several months had an ileostomy. That was an interesting experience. So you, you run into all these and everybody's individual needs are very different and very specific to them as a person, but the underlying foundation remains the same. Only eat when hungry, eat to satiety every meal, every day. Only eat what you crave and never put a sweet taste into your mouth. Everybody I know who commits to that succeeds. Now they might have bumps in the road. It's not always smooth sailing. And that's when you sit down with your coach and, and you talk about it and then you create strategies to help get them around whatever that bump in the road is. You know, maybe, maybe they need to go higher fat than they are. Maybe they need to go lower fat because their body's not uh, fat adapted enough to manage a high fat, uh, higher fat approach. And then, but then see, it's always, again, it's so specific to the individual. I do very well, high protein, low fat, comparatively. And then we have other coaches who are just going crazy. They, they're, they're doing 20% protein and 80% fat. So you learn, I listen to what my clients have to say. The first 15 minutes is not me talking, it's them talking. Them sharing what's wrong, how they perceive it, how they, you know, I, I'll, I'll ask some questions that give me an idea of what their view on food is and how they look at food and things like that and start ruling out, you know, eating disorders and as the client's talking. And then I just give them my best advice, which is let's follow the directions. If you're uh, coming straight from the standard American diet, I always recommend taking five weeks to reduce your carbs and plant intake by 20%. <laughs> Unless you just really want to do it the hard way. <laughs> rip some, pe off. <laughs> some people choose to do it the hard way. And uh -huh. I've had some people succeed at that. But I've had more people fail than succeed, unfortunately. Uh, the cravings just over and the discomfort overwhelms them. Because mm -hmm. people don't understand the significant transformation in going from being somebody who burns sugar, glucose for energy all the time to somebody who's burning their fat to make their energy, their glucose, et cetera, with. It's a different thing. It's much more healthy. Burning <laughs> ketones, your organs love burning ketones for energy. Oh my gosh. Um, but that's my approach. Keep it simple. Trust your body, trust the process. And if we have to, if we have to get jiggy with it, we will. You know, if, if we have to, if we have to investigate. If we have to seek out medical advice, we do what's necessary because I commit myself to every client with the understanding I am here to help you succeed. That is my sincerest wish is that you succeed at this because you deserve to feel how you were genetically designed slash evolved to feel. We weren't made to be miserable. No. <laughs> that's how that's my coaching philosophy. I hope that made sense. 
Uh, well, yeah, you know, kind of. No. <laughs> Sorry, well, Brad... a little bit around the edges. You win bag, bold man. What's wrong with you? And you had to say the rules, didn't you? You had to. But I didn't to. say them. Oh! I didn't say them. I didn't do it the way I did for so long that used to drive you crazy. Now, did I? Yeah, it wasn't as bad. No, but still, you had to get them in there, didn't you? You just had to. I did. What? You had to. You had to. Oh my god! I had to. I I I told Sean Sean Baker that to his face in front of the whole community here a few couple of months ago, and he didn't mind at all. Imagine that! It didn't bother. He seemed rather pleased. Wait! 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 wait. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, you went there. You went there. I did. Go anyway. Ahead. Anyway. Well, Brett, it was really good uh, chatting with you and getting to dig a little deeper. And thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Well, thank you so much, Amber, for having me. And I want to congratulate you. You have blossomed into this incredible advocate for this way of eating. You went from somebody who, by your own admission, wasn't dripping with a lot of self-confidence. And you have just become this great advocate. You put yourself out there. You set some goals. And by golly, you've been reaching them. And it's been really a wonderful thing to see your transformation over well, this last you, couple of years. Thank you, my friend. Thank you. That's very you're sweet. Very, you're very welcome. You know I'm in every word, too. I do. I do. So thank you very much. You're and welcome. thank you again for coming on. And y'all, subscribe to my channel right there. And go follow Brett. And I'll have all his information below, so don't worry. And thank you so much for watching. Bye, Brett. Thank you. Take care.